Good morning, good afternoon. This is Chris, and uh, wherever you are, I'm happy to be talking to you today about something that's really important to you, and that is you. When I was 14 years old, I read a book by a guy called Paul Ehrlich about how the current rate of consumption of product in the world, of resources and the environment, was being completely overtaken by the number of people who were being born. He predicted, uh, sadly, that we would get to a point where there would be too many people to consume too much of the planet and we would go into what would be called, in his words, a negative balance. He didn't have a prediction that we would get genetically modified foods he didn't get the prediction that there would be things like uh, COVID and war and whatever took place that would pull the population growth back into some level of balance. But he also didn't predict there would be famines and diseases that would also affect population growth. The most important part about this is not what Paul Ehrlich predicted, but that we've used chemicals and all sorts of modifications of foods in order to feed the masses. You know, most of the things that are produced in America contain corn starch and sugars that are really bad for people's health. But what it means is people get fed. Even McDonald's has an impact on this balancing equation because McDonald's provides a fast food for a group of people who can't afford not fast food. And so feeding the growing population, 7 billion coming up to 8 billion soon of the world, requires that we modify what we consume. Our cities are also getting bigger. And by the age of 16, I was marching in the streets and doing all sorts of things to try to urbanise or try to protect human beings from themselves. I wrote papers on it, I stood up at school and I held protest plaques. It was about two years later that the Vietnam War started and I protested the fact that we were involved in the Vietnam War and luckily for me, my name didn't get called up in the call-up, otherwise I would have descended. My friends went, some didn't come back. But all these things are an, a, an, a massive impact on what we call normality, our everyday life. When I finally went to university, uh, after failing high school and having to spend a year out in the desert, locked away from any form of ambition, which was a good fun year, by the way. I got back into the lowest university in probably at that time in the world, which was Swinburne Technical College, to study mechanical engineering, which I had no interest in. I was really interested in mechanical and environmental engineering. But through the mechanical engineering degree and by enabling myself to get into this university, I could study the environment again, which is my passion. And what I studied was air pollution control. And I became 
through association with a company that gave me a sort of weekend job and a, and a holiday job while I went through uni. I became really adept at understanding the ins and outs of air pollution. I learnt that most organisations, most companies in the world that produce big profits have a statement in their values list that says, let's not pollute the planet. But out through their chimney, they claim whatever came out was the consequence of technical inability to reduce it. After four years at uni, I patented a system of hot gas scrubbing, a system that could take massive amounts of pollution out of brick kilns and out of aluminium smelters and out of cement factories by using gravel and sand as the filtration mechanism for this very, very hot and very, very toxic gas that was being pumped into the atmosphere. At this point in time, I was lucky enough to get a job in a company through completely serendipitous circumstances that sent me around the world. And I travelled the planet. I lived in America under the auspices of this company for six months. And I got to see how enjoyable it is to be ignorant of air pollution. I got to see how people didn't care. Now, my job was using was filtering air still, was using air to dry things. And so my expertise in the management of airflow, in jet propulsion, in, in flow dynamics, and understanding all this uh, work helped me uh, help many companies around the world in drying paper. And I know that sounds a little trivial, but I end up in Asia working, traveling throughout the, the, the very darkest places of Asia in the very most primitive parts where they had uh, built um, uh, 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 paper making uh, factories right on the edge of rainforests, right on the edge of the most lucrative uh, timber that they could get. So they didn't have transportation costs for timber. And so these factories were built without any pollution control systems at all. They belched out their, their fumes in the making of paper uh, by consuming masses of wood, putting it through all these very, very noxious processes, pumping the water down the rivers, uh, pumping the pollution into the air. And I got really, over the next two years, really, really pissed off with how corporations were completely blindsiding human beings who didn't have a voice. I was dealing with the managers, and in many cases in Asia, Chinese owners of these big factories that were planted all the way through Indonesia, Malaysia, uh, in the backwoods of um, the Philippines, um, all up through Korea. I, I, I met the owners and, and the manager, and I talked to them about the environmental impact of their plant while I helped them dry paper. And they threw their arms up and said, what can we do? So there was, a, again, a willingness to ignore the little person who lived in the village down the street, who was dying from consuming the water or breathing the atmosphere. I got ticked off 
And when I eventually uh, left this company after uh, uh, three or four years working for them, I started my own air pollution control business. And I was lucky, again, uh, I knew um, someone who worked at that original air pollution control company while I was going through uni. He worked in a company that was had gone bankrupt and I bought the company he worked for that had gone bankrupt. And um, with $500,000 of debt um, and I negotiated with the German uh, licensee of that product that they'd gone into debt for uh, to delay the payment for three years while I rebuilt the business. And with very little business management experience except very hands-on uh, experience that I'd, I'd built three businesses already by the time I was 20 years old. So I kind of like knew what it took and the amount of hard work it took. I took this business from minus 500000 to $12 million profit in five years. But the reason it went from low profit or broke to high profit was not because I was a great businessman. It was because I have a passion, a steep, stilled Australian passion for nature. I love nature. And I really get ticked off when I see people consciously polluting the atmosphere. And so with the license that I'd um, uh, created um, and the patented system that I'd built, I went around Australia and uh, uh, some parts, other parts of the world, selling air pollution control systems. Many of them were, would you believe, indoors. So when we think of air pollution control, we think of atmospheric. But the atmosphere in which people work, like in a factory making, as an example, TT, the uh, Lipton factory in Melbourne, the dust that comes off tea, when you open a big box that comes from India or something, it's a wooden box, and you tip that box upside down, the dust that comes off tea on the conveyor belt is carcinogenic. It's very fine. It kills people. It's as bad as asbestos. And so part of my work was industri what's called industrial hygiene, making the environment for people who worked inside indoors, inside factories, inside places, inside places where there were conveyor belts, conveying grain, conveying cement, conveying coal, making the environment livable for the people who worked there. Now, up until the 80s and 90s, people often wore masks or as it was in uh, when I went doing asbestos protection in Malaysia, no mask, or and, and also Indonesia, no masks at all, because the consequences of their death could never be linked back to their work, and so the companies remained immune. But the time had changed, and people were getting sick, and the links weren't being made between tobacco smoking, between very fine dust and and people's well-being. And so the environment inside factories became crucial for the wellness of staff, but also for profit. And so I got a lot of work doing industrial hygiene, cleaning the atmosphere inside a, a factory. And this is sort of unbelievable thing to say that we would knowingly let the dust fume off a conveyor belt in a tea factory into the mouths and the, and, the, and, and the lungs of the people who worked there, knowingly that they were being uh, uh, ca cancer-causing, uh, uh, consuming the air. 
But very often they were low paid workers, very often with, again, like my villages in Indonesia and Malaysia, without a voice. So stronger, the more I worked with this, I built massive cement uh, air pollution control systems in Adelaide, in Darwin, in, uh, in, in, in Perth, in Western Australia. I, I did uh, brick kilns in, um, in, 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 in Melbourne. I did aluminium smelters down in Geelong. I did all sorts of air pollution control, trying to lower the amount of pollutant in the atmosphere that children and people and, and, and adults and, and innocent people driving past a commercial factory were consuming and smelling. So very often these pollutants have a stink. The, the, the smell of a paper factory is abhorrent. And it's not just the water that smells, the air stinks. And it stinks because of particulate. And that particulate is pollution. I'm an Australian. I love nature. I am passionate about the environment. I'm, I live at Bondi Beach. I love clean water. I see where air pollution and water pollution is damaging the health and well-being. I'm not so much interested in the cosmetic aspect of it. I respect it. But I really care about its impact on the well-being of a human being. I built this company up and made a lot of profit. And I worked around the world, traveling backwards and forwards to Germany, but going into different parts of the world on behalf of the German licensee to design air pollution control systems for some of the biggest companies on the planet. And one day, while all this was going on, my marriage started to break down. And that started making me question myself. Was I, was I, was I, was I commercially corrupted? Anyway, I didn't know what to do about it. I, I went to hypnotherapy. I went to some a yoga practice. I loved yoga all my life and meditation. I went to try to not feel bad about corrupt the corruption that had taken place. I had bent in the process of building an air pollution control business. I bent myself and... And now I had this massive company turning over millions of dollars, uh, making millions of dollars profit. I'm driving a fancy car. Our family had two brand new cars, a Range Rover and a beautiful new car. So we had everything you could ask for. But when I went to work every day, I wasn't saying, how do I help the world get less polluted? How do I get the, help the world lower the air pollution on the planet? What I was asking was, how do I get the next contract? And therefore, my negotiation with companies and with people was bent toward the commercial side of it, and I lost my purpose. And as I lost my purpose, my desire to sabotage everything that I stood for grew. And suddenly, my marriage started to get wobbly legs. Suddenly, I was having a, an affair with somebody. Suddenly, I was drinking on the wrong time of the day. Suddenly, I was witnessing the downfall of my whole empire that I'd spent so many years of hard work building and completely naive to the fact that this corruption that had taken place in me, going from an environmentalist who was building a business to help the world 
reduce the air pollution, therefore save the lives of children and people and make it a better place, I was suddenly waking up going, how do I make another buck to pay the next bill? Because I had mortgages and I had uh, 38 employees and people all over the country uh, depending on me. And so what I did in the process of doing that, and when I started to question it, I started to sabotage. I thought I was still doing a good job, but I wasn't. And things started to come apart. The wheels started to fall off the cart. And one day, a very miraculous day, during the process of all this, I was in Blue Circle Southern Cement in, at uh, Berrima in New South Wales. And the air pollution of the factory was terrible. They built the cement factory so far away from civilization, they thought it didn't matter. The technology that I had and the technology they were using were miles apart. I was using the systems that I designed, the processes that I patented, the license that I had from Germany, world's best standard. And they were claiming that they didn't want to spend that much money to reduce the air pollution control of this factory. Because why care? Anyway, I went for dinner with the general manager of the factory and we were installing $500,000 worth of air pollution control. Some of it industrial hygiene, but a big chunk of it was in those big chimney stacks you see when you go past the cement plant. Belching out dust, which is carcinogenic by the way. So I sit down for dinner and I'm looking around the house and there's dust everywhere. There's dust in my hair. There's dust on the table. And I said to the manager of the plant, gee, there's a, a lot of the cement factory dust comes. He goes, yeah, when the wind is blowing from the east, we get filled with dust. He knew that this is carcinogenic. He knew this is not good. He knew that this was a problem. And he was an Aussie. And here he is subjecting his own family to pollution to toxicity and yet he was the most loving caring guy he had his kids on his knee we laughed he was had a beautiful partner and was at a little above ground swimming pool in the backyard and he was a, just a real good Aussie guy but for some reason he too had turned a blind eye to the abuse of the factory. The next day I was in his office and I'd done my work on the plant. I'd looked at my team. They were installing some machinery and I said to him, you know, I can reduce your air pollution from 100 milligrams per cubic metre down to 50 milligrams per cubic metre and I can do it for about 50 grand. And remembering I was installing $500,000 worth of machinery, 50 grand, and my $500,000 worth of machinery was part of a multi, multi, multi-million dollar upgrade for the plant. And he said, no, nah, there's no way I can justify it. I'm sitting in front of this guy, questioning my own moral intent, commercialised myself. I'm sitting in front of this guy, having had dinner with him, with a loving family, being welcomed into their home. I'm sitting in front of this guy and he's the general manager of a very big factory. Very huge. Three cement kilns. And I burst into tears. It's the most 
terrible moment of my business career. I've cried a lot in my life. I usually choose private moments or the privacy of my relationship or the privacy of a space to let those tears flow. But I know professionalism and there is no place for tears in the office of the general manager of the business. What had happened is the stress and the emotions and the pollution in my own life had overcome me. This worry about compromise, this worry about my sense of passion for nature and my passion for a clean environment had been put second and here I was revealed because I didn't have a choice but to say, okay, thank you for polluting the world. I will just take the job in the interest of making a profit and walk away. I left his office, drove back to Sydney to catch the plane back to Melbourne where I lived. But I was a broken person. By the time I got back to Melbourne, I'd made up my mind I had to stop. My marriage was failing. The business was making a profit, but I was not enjoying it at all. This situation, I needed to fight. I needed to fight for the environment. And I made a decision there to become an environmentalist, to go into the world of consulting, to go into the world of making the world uh, uh, environmentally, at least in the air, which is what my uh, gift was, uh, in air pollution control and understanding the, the, no the noxious fumes and understanding the air pollution, understanding the ecos ecosystems, understanding the things we can change and the things we can't, understanding it all and broadcasting it, making it known to all people the pollution that was deliberately being pumped out. At the same time as this was happening, cigarette smoking was being put on the radar for people. So I, I had a, I almost had an opportunity to ride the back of a very public thing. But the cigarette smoking drew me to another awareness. And the cigarette smoking made me realise that even though I was selling air pollution control to big factories, people who smoke were basically putting air pollution into their own lungs voluntarily. Suddenly I realised I'd been fighting a battle with big uh, industry, big companies, big organisations, with the general manager in the factory. But the question was, did the, pol did the people really care? If you're smoking a cigarette and they put an ad on the cigarette saying you're killing yourself and you still smoke a cigarette... You're basically saying, I don't care. Or, I don't believe that air pollution kills me. I travelled all over the planet as an, an environmentalist. I sold the business. I started to develop this passion to speak to audiences, to, to create this idea in the minds of others that we need to look after ourselves. We need to be each and every individual needs to be environmentally sensitive. And I had a receptive audience all throughout the North of America. I had a super receptive audience. Not so much in Australia, because in Australia people took it for granted that the environment is great. That we have so much bushland. And if people in Australia say, 
there's too much pollution, they jump in their car and go bush. It's not very far away. But not everybody who lives in big cities can do that. And so I had a, a beautiful receptive audience, especially in cities like LA and New York, Chicago. So I made a decision at that point to change my career. I'm going to be, as I said to myself, a professional speaker because I want to spread the word that the environment, nature and air pollution and the pollution we accept is unacceptable. We need to protect our planet. I went back to university for two years to study behavioural science. So I understood the process of going from one thought to the other thought, behavioural systems. How do you change the behaviour of people? And the best way to study behavioural science in Australia is to do an MBA specialising in the human resource aspect of it. And I did that MBA. What it did, that MBA, it gave me the clear, clear knowledge that the academic world of business is blind. I ended up knowing less at the end of that MBA than I went in with. I knew all about arbitrage and stock markets and I knew all about monetizing business and, and all sorts of uh, uh, gaps between strategy and structure and culture. I understand that stuff and that's really valuable. But if the knowledge I've got can't be applied to the passion I have, then it's lost knowledge. It's, as Einstein said, I don't remember anything that isn't of use to me. So as a speaker, I stood on stage. My work was about consciousness, human consciousness around the planet, because I was basically saying, we need to be careful about nature. We need to be careful about the environment. We need to be worried about what we breathe in, car fumes, noxious poisons, things that come out of refrigerators, all sorts of things, the dust that comes from a saw when you're cutting something in the garden, from a concrete saw to the smoke that comes off the backyard fire when you make a barbecue. We need to be mindful. And after two or three years of successfully travelling the world and moving to New York and, and speaking professionally on stage, I looked out at an audience one day and I said, I am so full of shit because actually if I take this audience and take them into a workshop and ask them, what do you think about the environment? They, they will tell you it's very, very important. Save the whales, save the dolphins. Don't cut down trees. They'll be conscious, super consciously environmentally aware. But that individual may not act in a way that represents their own headspace. And so the word headspace came up. Headspace. What's going on in a person's head? What's going on in a person's mind? That's the environment. If we pollute our brain with hate and anger and judgment and criticism, attachment to partners, uh, attachment to work, if we do not carry love in our heart, in our mind, for the life and for ourselves and for the space we create and we are careless about where we put our socks and what we drink and what we eat, what sort of, what sort of expression of that is going to transmit to the outer world and so inner wealth was born. Now I am not a spiritual guy. I care about the environment. I care about nature. To me, caring about what goes on in our head is the most 
powerful environment we can have in our lives. And yet we go give it up so easy. We are like that manager of the cement plant. We go, I've got a goal at work. I've written my goals down. I'm going to make a profit. I don't give a shit what goes on inside my head until it goes so bad that I get an emotional problem or a stress problem or a physiological problem that derives from stress in my brain. 98% of people on the planet don't live to old age. They die young. They die of stress. In other words, the thing inside our head, our brain, is the environment we first must take care of. Otherwise, it's hypocritical, isn't it? Worried about water pollution. Worried about air pollution. Worried about uh, uh, population control. Worried about all these things and blaming the world for it. Talking about bushfires and El Nino and all these other things. When we've got anger and hate and vindictiveness and jealousy and cruelty inside our own brain towards ourselves. And so inner wealth was born and the business changed and I changed. And along the way, sometimes from time to time, I get obsessed with success. I get obsessed with goal setting. I get obsessed with visions. I get obsessed with these things. But I only started doing all that to make the outer world ordered so the inner world could become calm. Inside a person's brain, there are layers. There we have a primal brain, which is the monkey brain, which is the brain that we were brought to this planet with millions and millions and millions and millions of years ago. And then we have the next level of brain and the next level and the next level. So these brains, these seven brains, seven levels of human being are all still there, ready to function, ready to operate. The primal brain, it's fight flight. It will protect itself one way or another. The should brain wants to join with a collaborative mindset of a community so it thinks that it thinks but it doesn't think. It takes the gospel and it takes books and it takes uh, other people's teachings like the Buddha and it listens to the internet and watches YouTube videos trying to emulate somebody else who probably has as just a disturbed brain as the individual doing the reading. The individual who's actually doing the searching is disturbing their brain by searching. There is no peace. There is an argument between what's going on and what they want to go on. Expectations block love. And then I see people in relationships treating themselves badly in order to make someone else happy. In other words, that's an air pollution system, that's a cement factory belching out dust and then cooking people dinner to say, don't worry about it. The pollution we put out, out of ourselves, is the pollution that drives pollution. The environment inside ourselves is the environment that causes everything. People say you measure a human being by their behaviour. People say you measure a human being and know a human being by watching what they do. They're wrong. Find out what that person thinks. Our thoughts transmit through walls that no behaviour can be seen. Our thoughts transmit across 
the ocean. Our thoughts transmit. Have you ever thought about somebody and then had them ring you up almost in the same second? Our thoughts are the power. That's where the pollution is. And if we want to be good Australians, if we want to be environmentally aware, connected to the atmosphere, we need to know how to control our thoughts. And so, the most important part of air pollution control is what goes on inside our head. The most important real estate we own is that little piece right on top of our skull. We are the environment we create. There's no use complaining that somebody is not listening to you or attracted to you or uh, not following you or is not doing what you want. That is all pollution. That is all toxin. Toxin to you and toxin to the world around you. There's no use being negative to people. Did you know that 90% of people on the planet have negative self-talk? And if you give negative self-talk, you can quite often push that person into the darkness that they're trying their hardest to avoid by being self-righteous. It is so easy to be complimentary. It is so easy to have a purpose, a vision. It is so easy to be thankful for small things. It is so easy to put love ahead of profit. It is so easy to say, I could be bothered by what you're saying. I could be annoyed with what you're saying. I could be disappointed by what you've done. I could be frustrated, but I know I don't have to be. I am not a pollution-making machine. My thoughts, my feelings create the environment that I build on this planet and I am one person who doesn't have to be one of the 98% of the planet thinking negative self-talk. I can be one of the people on the planet saying, no, I will not blame the government. I will not blame things. I will not go searching on the internet for new ways to be me. I will not go thinking that I can sharpen or harden or reinforce my identity by going and finding thoughts and people that agree with my opinions. I can say I will become formless. And what will give me form in the planet is a mindset, a mindset of love, a mindset of gratitude, presence, certainty and love. I will not be a polluter. I will make the decision. There are many stories, many anecdotes about the butterfly who flapped its wings and changed the world. Every single movement we make, every single step we take, whether we plant our foot hard on the floor or whether we feel the floor beneath our feet, that's a choice. And every one of us 
is powerful in having that choice. Whether your life is in a wheelchair, whether your life is in a hospital bed, whether your life is at the top of a corporation, whether your life is somehow distorted by the reality of your existence, you have a choice. You have a choice of how you think. And it's not so much what you think that matters. Because you can think a million thoughts and say those thoughts are me, but they're not. What matters and where the anti-pollution system comes from is how you think. How you think changes everything. It changes the atmosphere within your self, the environment within you, and the environment outside of you. I'm an environmentalist. I am not a psychologist. I want this world to be nature. I'm Aussie. I love nature. I love the purity and the sanctuary of the diversity and the complexity of nature. I'm not trying to go to a pristine lake and say that's how the world should be. I'm going to a pristine lake, to a Himalayan mountain, to an ocean wild in a kayak. I'm going to the most rainforest, burnt down, chopped down place and I'm looking for beauty. I will not be a, a victim of the environment outside of myself. I will make the environment inside myself the prime and to do that, I must become formless. I must learn how to adapt. I must stay true to this inner commitment not to be an angry person, not to be a hurt person, not to be a wounded person, not to be a victim, not to be environmentally, externally environmentally reactive, not to judge people not to criticise people, not to say, I would never be that person. I need love and I need it in my head. We call it our heart, but it's a thought. We only call it the heart because we don't know how to differentiate that thought of love and that thought of air pollutionness, freedom inside our mind. We don't know how to differentiate it from the thought that decides whether we have milk in our coffee or not. There is so much chasing going on in the world. We are chasing better health. We are chasing better leadership. We are chasing more profit. We are chasing uh, to be a better partner. We are chasing to bring up our kids. We are chasing, chasing, chasing. And that's great. That makes a people interesting. That makes them colourful the chase but if all of the chase turns on itself and creates pollution to the world if the factory is belching out carcinogenic dust if your thoughts which transmit through walls are causing the world to have pollution in it 
then you need to be somewhat accountable and also realize the power that you have to make the change, to make the thoughts and the feeling and the experience inside of you the primary. In my life, I've sabotaged many things and I've sabotaged many things because I've become hooked into the outcomes. I wrote a book and started traveling the world, selling my book and being uh, promoting my book. But in the process of doing that, I forgot what the book was bloody about and started talking about how many books I sold. Extraordinary. In building and working with First Nation people and youth at risk in Canada, I started that business talking about creating an environment in a community. And I got so frustrated with the pushback that I started getting uh, too big for my boots, I suppose you could say. And I forgot that the reason I was allowed in that as a white person, allowed in, in an indigenous community, because I love nature and because I'm humble and I believe in the environment, in the individual, can change the world. And I got hooked into trying to fight for indigenous rights. I got distracted. In our lives, things are going to come and go. In our lives, people are going to come and go. In our lives, our wealth is going to grow and shrink and grow and grow, shrink and grow. All these things move. And that's a beauty of the, of the world around us. We don't know what is going to happen in Russia and the Ukraine. We don't know whether an aeroplane is going to flip upside down in Nepal and kill people. We don't know. And in that not knowing, there is proof that relying on the outer world to create the environment of our inner world is very foolish. Relying on a relationship to make us happy. Relying on our children behaving in the way we want to make us happy is not the way it's meant to be. Relying on how much money we earn to make us happy is not the way it's meant to be. We have control of the environment within us. And then we read the newspaper. The question's going to be, does the newspaper reading affect the environment within? And there's the power of being a human being, the environment within. And so, as I close this off, and I reflect on the era from being 14 to where I am now. 55 years. I have never deviated a day from the concept of needing to be responsible for nature and the environment we create. The only thing that's changed is the form of that environment has gone from factory chimneys and industrial hygiene 
and how many people are born and how much they eat and how much they consume to the power of a human thought and what it can cause on this beautiful planet. That's where nature starts. It starts in any individual saying, I will take responsibility for my thoughts and and those thoughts can be gratitude, presence, certainty and love. And from there I will build the outside world because thoughts travel through walls that behaviour cannot see. This is Chris. You have a beautiful day. Bye for now.